Hello and welcome to Noteworthy Reading, episode two of our Tolkien series entitled Oxford, Edith, and War. If you missed our first episode, um, that really covers Tolkien's childhood, adolescence, and high school years. This episode is going to cover his entry to Oxford, his engagement to Edith, and his training for World War I. Um, we also we have a YouTube channel, so if you've missed that, uh, you definitely want to look for, just search Noteworthy Reading on YouTube, and you should should see our channel come up. And uh, we, if you're listening via podcast, maybe you don't know, we do have a video with visuals and uh, graphics that sort of display what we're talking about. So uh, be sure to catch that and don't miss that. Now, when we start talking about um, Tolkien... Um, his entry to Oxford, I kind of want to back up a little bit because um, we have to address when he met Edith, uh, who would later become his wife. He met Edith at the age of 16 in 1908, and um, they were both under the care of Father Francis Morgan, and Edith could uh, play piano, she danced, she was very beautiful. She was three years older than Tolkien, so she was 19 and he was 16, uh, so a little bit of an age gap, but Tolkien was head over heels in love, and unfortunately, as soon as Father Morgan found out about that, he quickly separated them and instructed Tolkien that, hey, you know, he had to wait till he was 21 before he could even correspond with her. So, Tolkien receives that instruction from Father Morgan, and instead of being bitter, Instead of, uh, you know, even losing connection to Edith, he uh, maintained his affections for both people, for Father Morgan and Edith, and um, agreed to uh, put the relationship on pause, get his education under his belt, and then move forward later. Uh, One note about Edith. Uh, Her last name was Bratt, B-R-A-T-T. And I I looked up, because I wanted to know, I was... was, thinking, was her name just as, um, I don't know, disadvantageous today as it was back then? And yes, uh, that word brat, B-R-A-T-T, actually comes from an English um, Midlands term uh, that refers to a beggar's cloak. Uh, And there's also a Celtic-Irish term brat that uh, is connected to the idea of a cloak. And I guess that uh, term ameliorated and became something that described a kind of misbehaving child or, you know, uh, someone who wasn't disciplined uh, as a brat. So in, uh, in um, 21st century fashion, you know, we could say that Edith probably wanted her name changed. And Tolkien lived up to that and did eventually change it. But we'll get to that later. First, I want to talk about Tolkien's entry to Oxford. In October of 1911, Tolkien entered Oxford by way of automobile, uh, he was, and he was with another student by the name of L.K. Sands, who sadly, L.K. Sands would be killed by German machine gun fire four years later in World War I. Um, upon a- arrival, and in keeping with his generation, Tolkien enlisted in the King Edward's Horse Cavalry Regiment, okay? And his job in that regiment was to train horses. He would re- get a horse, and no sooner had he trained and broken that horse would he be given another horse to train and break and the cycle repeated itself? Uh, so, you know, we might think of his job as a little bit frustrating, but 
Tolkien had a very, uh, he had an affinity with horses. He, he, uh, he doesn't just write about horses in his books from sort of, sort of a far off place. Oh, they're very beautiful. Oh, look at them in the pasture. Um, he scooped the poop. He trained them when they were ill-tempered and misbehaved. So he knew the bad side of a horse. He knew the beauty of a horse. He knew the potential that could be built into a horse and that sort of symbiotic, rela- sym- um, symbiotic relationship that horses could have with people. And um, when we see Tolkien in his literature talk about shadow facts, talk about Hasselfoth, you know, he actually gives names to a lot of the horses that appear in the text. Bill the Pony, you know, there's a real connection the characters have to that horse. It's not just a, you know, sort of a soulless animal. Uh, he really treats it as a, a beautiful being that is um, part of the team. So, he does, and, and I guess I bring up the King Edward's horse just to show that, you know, he wasn't doing this just out of like a kind of a fantastic idea about horses. He really had hands-on experience, probably the most difficult hands-on experience, and he still thought very highly of them and really included them in his literature. Real quick, let's talk a little bit more about Oxford. Now, Oxford had been around for seven centuries. It was, you know, obviously still today, uh, you know, the premier center of learning, uh, probably one of the most difficult places to get accepted to. And um, Oxford was founded by Alfred the Great. Now, Alfred the Great was one of the first great Anglo-Saxon kings. He successfully defended England from the Vikings. Uh, England's boroughs and shire system, like the way that they organized their communities, actually comes from Alfred the Great. That was part of one of his sort of, he fortified those boroughs, fortified those shires, and sort of set them up uh, so that they were not as easily invaded. Also, Alfred the Great was one of the first kings, he was the first English king to write a book. Um, and actually, let me see, was he the first English king? He was, yeah, that's what I have here. He was the first English king to write a book. One of his books, uh, called Doom Book, which was written in Old English, um, in Old English, that would be Dombach, uh, comes from, uh, the word doom, meaning judgment, okay? Um, and what it did was it integrated secular law, uh, with scripture with an emphasis on mercy, okay? Which is really an interesting format for laws back then. Um, for instance, uh, one of the stranger laws that you find in that book is that, you know, if a man chops down a tree and it accidentally lands on some other man and kills that man, that man's family would be entitled to all the lumber of that tree. Okay, the person who chopped it down, who obviously wasn't intending to kill anyone, you know, involuntary manslaughter, he wasn't about to have to pay a murderer sentence. Um, so you find sort of these nuances of law, you find Christian compassion in law that Alexander the Great pioneered into the English system. That's one of the reasons why he's Alfred the Great. Um, now, in within the Oxford College, Tolkien entered Exeter College. Exeter College was founded in 1314 by Walter Stapleton, who was a priest uh, for students, and he mainly trained clergy. That was really why he founded that college. So, Tolkien enters Oxford. He's an orphan of little means, and so you know, maintaining his scholarship is going to be really important. But, uh, you know, was he the la- laser focused first-year undergraduate that we hope he was? And did he thrive on his first year? In short, no. Um, they say that Tolkien's mantelpiece was littered with invitations to all sorts of clubs, uh, nearly all of which he joined. Uh, so in addition to King Edward's horse, uh, he also was a member of, the, of all these clubs. He also started two clubs. 
while he was at Oxford. Um, apoletics, which is the Aristotelian term for the uh, morality based on the pursuit of pleasure. And then another club called the Checkers Club, where he would host fine dinners and they would uh, give lectures on whatever topic they wanted to give lectures on. He also took to buying Japanese furniture with his very, you know, small allowance from uh, from Father Francis Morgan and uh, fancy clothes. And so we get the idea that he's a little distracted in his first year. He's This is the first freedom he's really had, you know, out, outside of the care of his guardian. And he's a little bit... Uh, kind of having some fun out there and is not necessarily taking his studies extremely seriously. He was also not particularly into his major. Uh, he started out, we, we talked in the last episode, uh, the last podcast about how he started majoring in the classics. Well, uh, he was really just majoring in the classics just so that he could, um, he had, you know, he would get through all of the Homer and Vulture that, and Vol, uh, Homer and Ver, Virgil that he would have to study um, with the classics so that he could then justify studying uh, all of the other sort of northern northern mythologies and languages that he wanted to study. So he was kind of, he hadn't really found out what he really wanted to do yet. And um, we know that, you know, while he's studying the classics, uh, he is also checking out uh, C.N.E. Eliot's uh, A Finished Grammar, uh, A Finished, A Finished Grammar, uh, from the Exeter Library, and then he's using that to read the Finnish Kalevala. So he's teaching himself Finnish so that he can read mythology in Finnish. He also read a poem called Sinwolf, um, which is also uh, known as Christ. It's an old Anglo-Saxon poem. I believe it's, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. But in that poem, he came across the term uh, Midengard, or Mid- Midgard, which means um, the middle... Uh, the middle yard where humans dwell in Old English. Um, so we believe that he kind of got that concept or got that idea of Middle Earth from uh, that poem. Um, and also in the poem Sinwolf, we find these lines, which uh, if you've ever read the Silmarillion, you'll, you'll kind of recognize. Uh, and these are in Old English. So, And my Old English pronunciation is not great at all. Uh, but it says, uh, Elna Arendelle Ingol Berotast. Ofer Middengard Mulam Sended, which is Old English for Hail Arendelle, brightest of angels, sent unto men upon Middle Earth. When we look at what who this Arendelle person is, um, Arendelle actually uh, in Old English is sort of a term that uh, references a um, the morning star. Okay, the morning star being Venus, which is a precursor to the sun, um, and when we look at the Old Testament in Luke 1, 68 through 79, um, the rising sun is a reference to Christ, okay? So, the morning star, which is a precursor to the sun, is then thought to be a picture of John the Baptist. So, in Sinwolf, we find Arundel, who is a picture of John the Baptist. Uh, and Arundel is the precursor to one of the characters in uh, Tolkien's... Um, Silmarillion, uh, who is mentioned in his poem, The Voyage of Arendelle, The Evening Star, uh, which is uh, one of Tolkien's initial entries into the Silmarillion. Uh, so, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, if he if he intended to carry over all this information from Simwolf into this poem, but uh, it, it's kind of hard to deny. I mean, it's very, it, it seems like he's drawing pretty heavily from Sinwolf when he's coming up with some of the, some of the initial concepts for the Silmarillion. 
So Tolkien's supposed to be studying the classics, but, you know, he's a little bit distracted, as we talked about before. And, you know, he has a lot of friends. He has kind of a broad friend base. Uh, and then he has one close friend. Uh, his name was Colin Cullis. Unfortunately, Colin Cullis would die in a few years from the, uh, the Spanish influenza. But, um, unfor- yeah, what, what that meant was is Tolkien had a very um, poor showing on his 1913 exam. Uh, which was over the classics. Uh, and actually, it wasn't a very poor showing. He got a second class grade. All right. And this exam, just to, just to tell you a little bit about it, it, was, it took place over the course of a week in three-hour sessions where he was supposed to write 12 essays. And in those essays, he was supposed to translate Bulger... Uh, I keep saying Bulger... Virgil's Latin and Homer's Greek and talk about, expound on the antiquities of the you know ancient, ancient Latins and ancient Greeks. Um... And he didn't, you know, he doesn't do very well, okay? And this puts his scholarship kind of in jeopardy. He sort of has to reorient and say, do I really want to major in the classics or not? Uh, And he makes a move to uh, change his major, essentially. Uh, Instead of majoring the class, English with an emphasis in the classics, he decides to major in English with an emphasis in language, okay? So he makes this change and is put under the... um, headship of a scholar by the name of Kenneth Sazam, who um, later, he would actually, in 1925, he would contend with Kenneth for the, the Anglo-Saxon professorship. Kenneth Sazam was uh, known to be kind of a severe man. He wasn't really a relaxed person. <laughs> he, he was pretty hypercritical. And Tolkien was very opinionated and already, you know, knowledgeable. He knew a lot about languages from an early age, and they butted heads a lot. Um, but uh, obviously, Tolkien learned a lot from the man. And also, uh, Kenneth was trained by a fellow by the name of Arthur Napier. And so, um, you know, I just I just want to make sure we don't lo- miss that, you know. Um, the scholar that taught uh, Tolkien... The scholar that taught the scholar that taught Tolkien was a Napier. So, I just, I have to say that. You know, I, I can't, I can't leave that out. So, Tolkien changes his major. Now he's studying uh, the... the languages and mythology that he's always wanted to study without having to go through the classics, and he wins the English Prize for Excellence in 1914. Tolkien spent his prize money, five pounds, on a volume of literature by a fellow by the name of William Morris. William Morris was also an Exeter alumni, and um, he was not, not only was he a writer, he was a visual artist. He he painted, he designed tapestries, he designed furniture, and he was... um, the author of two works, uh, one called uh, The Life and Death of Jason, and another uh, The House of the Wolfings. Uh, He wrote other things too, but those were the two works that inspired Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien bought those and devoured them and really, really loved them. uh, And that is where we think he kind of got his quote-unquote high style of writing. We see things in Lord of the Rings like when Gandalf says... um, so are all who live to see such times, but that is not them, for them to decide. You know, like, that way of speaking is not normal, you know. E- even for, you know, the British in the Victorian era, it was a little, uh, it seemed archaic. It, it had this, this archaic feel to it. Um, he got that high style from uh, William Morris. And I remember talking to a young lady right after I read it, when I was in high school. And um, she was talking about how Tolkien, she was like, I just don't get it. You know, he... 
it's poorly written. It's just, it sounds weird. Uh, you know, there's all this scenery and maps and stuff. I, she just, and there's these poems, and it's just not that, she didn't understand it. And to an extent, I can see what she was saying. But um, that high style of writing uh, goes back to that influence that uh, William Morris had on Tolkien. And uh, to say a little more about William Morris, William Morris is something, uh, he, he is known as a pre-Raphaelite, okay? The pre-Raphaelites uh, were a group of artists in the Victorian era, and they believed art should be as similar to the real world as possible, okay? Uh, and they kind of were rebelling against Raphael. Raphael, the painter, he painted, you know, very lifelike people, but they were always kind of surrounded by this mystic, sort of magical, unlifelike, too-good-to-be-true surroundings, okay? Um, and if you look like, if you look at a, uh, a painting um, in the pre-Raphaelite era, um, one author, or one painter um, who painted the, the painting, you can Google it, it's, it's a painting called Ophelia, and uh, it was painted by Sir John Everett in 1851. Um, he was very dedicated to making it lifelike, okay? Uh, it took him five months to just paint the water, all right? So he's very intent on making it precisely look real. Um, but the painting itself isn't I idealized, okay? Uh, and the painting, if you look it up, it's of a uh, young woman. She's laying in a stream, okay? She's in a, a Victorian dress, and she's just laying there, and she has sort of a, a look of longing in her eyes, you know, and, and um, uh, it it's actually really captures the Pre-Raphaelites very well, because they were dedicated, they wanted to show the beauty of life, but they also wanted to show, you know, the the algae in the water, and the, you know, not always idyllic landscape. Uh, another example would be, you know, if somebody is, um, you know, in their home, and it's a pre-Raphaelite painting. They'll be in their home, but you know a drawer will be open, and there'll be things on the desk, and there'll be an unmade bed or something like that. You know, it, it's it's not it's a it's more it's a more realistic sort of still life of the human experience, not sort of an idealized version of the Catholic faith or uh, of uh, you know what what people's lives were like um, back then. So. Um, if we want to look at some of the writing from the pre-Raphaelite era, um, aside from uh, William Morris, uh, look at someone uh, by the name of Christ Christina Rossetti. Okay, um, she uh, wrote a poem called "Song." It was written in 1848 and uh, uh, published in 1862. And it goes part of it goes like this, and it's a very just when you listen to it, think of think of painting a picture of beauty, but sort of a brokenness. You know, a beauty in a broken world. Okay, that's very apparent in this poem. She sat and sang all way by the green margin of a stream, watching the fishes leap and play beneath the glad sunbeam. I sat and wept all way beneath the moon's most shadowy beam, watching the blossoms of the May weep leaves into the stream. I wept for memory. She sang for hope that is so fair. My tears were swallowed by the sea. Her songs died in the air. In that picture, you, I don't know if this is Christina Rossetti's actual you know, recollection of some experience she had, or she was just sort of writing about a moment that, that she imagined. Um, you, you see you know, two beautiful young ladies, and they're, they're uh, kind of longing for more than what they have. They're, they're, they're maybe wishing that um, uh, you know, life wasn't so short, or maybe they're wishing for things that they'll never have. All of those things... Um, are portrayed in that poem, and it is a very stark 
uh, example of a pre-Raphaelite idea. Uh, someone else you might look at who um, was writing at the time, it's uh, G.K. Chesterton, he, who, who wrote a lot of works, The Everlasting Man, Orthodoxy. He was writing at the time, and one quote that we have uh, from the preface uh, of Orthodoxy also really captures this idea of beauty in a broken world and what that means to us. In his preface uh, of Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes, Moments of pleasure are the remnants of paradise washed ashore from a shipwreck. Bits of paradise extended through time. We must hold these relics lightly and use them with utility and restraint. Never seize them as our entitlements. That's a very Christian sort of idea that um, the wonderful, beautiful things that we find in life are the remnants of a lost Eden. Okay, It's remnants of a broken paradise that we, uh, we still see and we still find, but it's not, uh, you know, life's not perfect. So, Tolkien reflects this in a lot of his poems. You know, um, the elves, for example, in The Silmarillion and in Lord of the Rings, they're in Lothorian, which Lothorian is a, actually kind of a pre-Raphaelite picture. You have uh, leaves that are always falling. You know, you have these beautiful golden leaves in this, in this golden wood where they, you know, they're inhab- they inhabit the trees and, you know, their homes are always built around this landscape, but the landscape is fading. The landscape is dying. And the elves, there's sort of the sadness that just looms over them, and they know that they're going to have to leave and go to the Grey Havens. And so you see a really clear picture of a, you know, even just immortal, an immortal people, you know, who, you know, if they're not killed or that, um, if they're not killed or something befalls them, they live forever. And <laughs> but their their land and their their um, the the wood that they that they live in, the beautiful wood, is is fading because it's a broken place. Um, I would say that you know. As human beings, we experience that more so because we're not we're not immortal. We're all kind of passing through this place. We're all this in this together, um, and we you know while we're we experience health and youth and and um, moments of, of wonder and beauty, it doesn't last forever. And we have to we quickly come to learn we uh, this the things that we wish we could hold on to in life slowly slip through our fingers. Uh, that's a very pre-Raphaelite idea, and Tolkien. Uh, was greatly influenced by William Morris and the Pre-Raphaelites. I didn't, when I first read that, I didn't really, I was like, ah, is there anything to this? But I really do see it now, and I think it's, I think it's uh, a very um, big part of the picture, big part of why Tolkien did some of the things he did. And if you want to read more about that, uh, you should definitely read The Fellowship, uh, The Literary Lives of the Inklings by, um, it's actually by two people, Philip uh, and Carol Zelensky. It's a good read. The chapters on Tolkien are very, very good. So you should definitely check that out if you want to know more about the Pre-Raphaelites. Also, um, I wanted to look, you know, we're talking about how Tolkien's influences. I wanted to look at some of Tolkien's poetry before World War I. Uh, and um, so we're going to look at one publication that he had in the Oxford Poetry. Uh, it, was published, it was published in Oxford Poetry in 1915. Uh, and it's a poem called Goblin Feet, okay? Um, and just just to tell you, like, I'm not really a big fan of it, and neither were his friends. Um, when he show, showed this poem to Chris Wiseman, Chris Wiseman went so far just to say, when you're finished creating, when you're finished creating this, uh, it'll be as dead to you as the atoms that create our living food. Uh, and G.B. Smith wrote his girlfriend, his fiance that he was engaged to at the time, and told her, I really don't think Tolkien's on his game here. And uh, you might... You might think of it this way, okay? Tolkien is a budding artist. He hasn't really found himself yet. Um, he's, 
he's trying to create an aesthetic. He's really, really has something deep inside of him that he wants to say, but he doesn't know how to say it. And um, I don't know if you've seen the movie, uh, The Man Who Invented Christmas, um, where Dan Stevens plays uh, Charles Dickens. But there's this moment in that movie where he says, uh, he's trying to think of what to call his villain, all right? And he says, uh, he's like, his face is all, you know, um, twisted and angst because he's just trying to think of who he's going to call his villain. And he he says, you know, it's a scratch scrunger and then he get you know the music flares up and he looks right in the camera and he says scrooge you know he got it he found what he was trying to say tolkien is not there yet okay tolkien when he, in his early poetry he just hasn't found his aesthetic or his audience yet uh but i'll read a little bit of, of goblin's feet to you so you can hear kind of what his style was like before his sort of in his pre-world war one younger days um the last part of goblin feet goes like this I'm off down the road where the fairy lanterns glowed and the little pretty flitter mice are flying. A slender band of gray, it runs creepily away, and the hedges and the grasses are a-sighing. The air is full of wings and of blundery beetle things that warn you with their whirring and their humming. Oh, I hear the tiny horns of enchanted leprechauns and the padded feet of many gnomes that are coming. Oh, the warm, oh, the hum, oh, the colors in the sky, oh, the gauzy wings of golden honey flies, oh, the music of their feet, of their dancing goblin feet, Oh, the magic, oh, the sorrow when it dies. And those are the last lines. Um, and I want to read, wanna, before we talk about it, I want to read one more uh, poem. It's called The uh, Cottage of Lost Play. And you can kind of hear a similar rhythm and pick up on a similar sentiment. Uh, he, the last lines of, a cottage, of The Cottage of Lost Play go like this. And why it was tomorrow came, and with his gray hand led us back, and why we never found the same old cottage or the magic track that leads between a silver sea and those old shores and gardens fair, where all things are that ever were, we know not, you and me. Okay, so Tolkien's poetry, when he was younger, it really, you know, it's this longing for an idyllic past, and he's trying to sort of paint a mythology, like, you know, you have these um, almost... Uh, what what is it? It's the um, the flitter mice are flying. Like he, he's trying to find and create sort of a um, creatures to inhabit a, a myth mythological world, but it's just not his world building is just not there yet, and it's just not very good. And his friends kind of understood that, but you you what you don't see in Tolkien is you don't see a very um, to compare him to somebody who who is also writing at his time. Uh, James Matthew Barry. James Matthew Barry, who author of Peter Pan, um, he, uh, you know, he wrote a novel that became a play. Uh, and in Peter Pan, he's using like pirates, he's using Indians, he's using um, lost boys, and he has a very uh, well-developed character uh, of Tinkerbell. You know, he's really he's really got his world built, and he's carefully selected the ways he's going to build it. And, you know, Peter Pan, he's not longing for his lost past. He, like, embodies almost or the, the spirit of the orphan. Um, and it's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he doesn't have any parents. He's just living for play. Uh, and um, he, in fact, you know, when he's faced with death and the idea that life does pass you by, he just says, hey, you know, death would just be another big adventure. So even his perspective on mortality uh, is, is a lot different from, from Tolkien's. But um, I didn't want to not mention that Tolkien, uh, after seeing uh, the play in 1920, he wrote, uh, you know, it was indescribable, but I shall, I shall never forget it as long as I live. He really liked Peter Pan and was, and was heavily influenced by it. Um, 
So Tolkien is, um, he's now, he's studying under Kenneth Seism. He's doing a lot better in his studies. Uh, and um, in January, January 3rd, 1913, Father Francis Morgan Morgan's ban on he and Edith's relationship is lifted, okay? And we don't know if it's to the hour or not, but Tolkien quickly wrote Edith and um, at, at, contacted her by a letter at, asking her uh, to, to uh, re-engage with him in, in, his, in their relationship, and he's trying to woo her back. Edith is actually engaged to um, one of her close friend's brothers at this time. She feels she's three years older than him. Uh, and so she kind of felt, you know, like she was on the shelf, like it's about time for her to get married. And um, Tolkien wins her back, okay? Uh, and they were married eventually in 1916, just before World War One, And they, uh, they would go on their honeymoon, and um, they... Uh, they would. She would go with him as he trained for World War One. Um, also, around this time, uh, around the time that he wrote her that letter and and won her back, um, Tolkien was able to reconnect with the TCBS, and uh, they actually met in Chris Wiseman's home. Uh, and you know, they they had a, a gas fireplace and they smoked pipes and they solved all the world's problems and were able to reconnect. And that would be the last time they would all be together because all of them were signed up for World War One, and uh, not all of them sort survived, which we'll talk about uh, in the next episode. But, um, so Tolkien, he gets top marks in 1915. Uh, he graduates with a degree in language and, and literature, uh, and he, um, it, he enlists as a signal officer in World War I, okay? Uh, and his job as a signal officer, and, and he enlisted in the Lanc Lancashire Fusiliers in 1914, um, and his job was to maintain communication between command posts, okay? And they used to do this in a number of ways back then. They did so with flags, they did so with hand signals, whistles, runners, letters, uh, something called a heliograph, which a heliograph would catch the sunlight, and they would use that to uh, flash Morse code. But a lot of those methods were dated at this point because this was an artillery trench war. And so anytime the enemy would see any of that happening, they would shell that location wherever the flags or the heliograph was flashing. So they used a lot of telegraphic wire. And towards the end of the war, they would uh, learn radio communication with call signs and all of that that was more secure and uh, uh, covert. You know, it didn't attract all the attention that then would be followed by shelling. Um, so Tolkien... He trains as a signal officer, and um, during that time, he and Edith are married. They get married at St. Mary's Immaculate uh, Church Cathedral in, in, in Warwick. Warwick. I actually got in trouble in the last episode because I said Warwickshire, and my, my friend, uh, who's from England, he quickly corrected me and said, it's not Warwickshire, it's Warwickshire. Warwickshire, so I'm trying to say it better. They, they actually got, uh, they got married in Warwick. So, uh, at around this time, the soldiers entering world, the war on the front lines, uh, they were only lasting about two weeks. So, Tolkien's life expectancy is, is really, uh, he's not expecting to live through the war. And if he wasn't killed, uh, there was sickness in the trenches. It was just a really bad situation. So, um, in the aftermath of their honeymoon, uh, he's, he's, I think he's trying to wrap up his artistic career because he doesn't believe he's going to 
survive. And he tries to get, uh, two times, he tries to get his poems published in a compendium called The Trumpets of Fairy. Uh, Sedwick and Jackson re- rejects it twice, and Tolkien feels, you know, unfulfilled. He feels like, you know, he he really has all this desire and all this creativity, but it's just not going to happen right now. Um, when he was leaving for France, Tolkien composed a poem called The Lonely Isle, and the last lines of that poem read, Oh, lonely, sparkling isle, farewell. Uh, and, you know, this probably captures his sentiment, not just not just leaving um, home and not, not just going into a situation that's, um, where the chances of survival are very grim. He's leaving his new, his new wife, and um, he said that that, to him, felt like a death. He really did, he really did feel like it was, he was saying goodbye to his life when he left England. So those are the circumstances under which Tolkien enters World War I. Uh, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel. Uh, you can just search Noteworthy Reading on YouTube. And we look forward to talking more in our next episode about um, Tolkien's experience in World War One. Thank you.